Welcome to the Judgment Call Podcast, a podcast where I bring together some of the most curious minds on the planet. Risk takers, adventurers, travelers, investors, entrepreneurs, and simply mind boggles. To find all episodes of this show, simply go to Spotify, iTunes, or YouTube, or go to our website, judgmentcallpodcast.com. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or subscribe to us on YouTube. This episode of the Judgment Call Podcast is sponsored by Mighty Travels Premium. Full disclosure, this is my business. What we do at Mighty Travels Premium is to find the airfare deals that you really want. Thousands of subscribers have saved up to 95% in the airfare. Those include $150 round-trip tickets to Hawaii for many cities in the US, or $600 life led tickets in business class from the US to Asia, or $100 business class life led tickets from Africa round trip all the way to Asia. In case you didn't know, about half the world is open for business again and accepts travelers. Most of those countries are in South America, Africa, and Eastern Europe. To try out Mighty Travels Premium, go to Mighty Travels dot com slash mtp or if that's too many letters for you simply go to mtp the number four and the letter u dot com to sign up for your 30-day free trial i'm here today with aswat damodaran who teaches corporate finance um, and valuation at the stern school of business at new york city the new york university excuse me and uh, Aswat has, man, uh, has won many accolades for his unique no BS uh, teaching style. And he's also um, earned the moniker Dean of Valuation. Aswat is also shockingly productive. Uh, he um, wrote 11 books, as far as I could count. That might be incorrect by now. He has published hundreds of YouTube videos um, and uh, published this incredible array of white papers, uh, lots of different valuation techniques, and has his own website, which is really fun to read through. Welcome to the Judge McCall podcast, Aswant. How are you? I am good. Thank you for having me on. Hey, absolutely. It's a great honor. Um, uh, thanks for doing this. Really appreciate that. And I wanted to ask you, um, w what is that secret of your extreme productivity? Um, do you have something you can share with us so maybe we can learn from that? I, I've discovered that if I compartmentalize my life, I get a lot less done. In other words, if I say, this is my block for research, this is my block for teaching, this is my block for having fun, and this is for everything else, life's too, I mean, I don't have enough time. So I've discovered, and this is through hard experience, I guess, that when I do something, I try to develop, I, I try to accomplish multiple objectives. I'll give you an example. Last, uh, last year, in the midst of the COVID crisis, I decided that I wanted to write about the crisis in real time. And the reason is very simple, because if you wait till a crisis is over and you write about it, you have all these benefits of hindsight. You said, those people are stupid. They didn't even think about that. So I wanted to keep this journal. So I kept a journal. And it took, it took a little while, 20 minutes a day, 15 minutes a day. I put my thoughts in. But after about two weeks of keeping the journal, I said, you know what? I have enough thoughts here. I'm going to put them as a post. I wrote it as a blog post. There were a series of 14 blog posts that I wrote between February and December, each taking about two or three hours to write. And then I had 14 posts and I added up the pages and they're like 75 to 80 pages of writing in those posts. And I said, this is a pity to let go to waste. So right now I'm taking those 14 posts, I'm consolidating them into a paper 
basically bringing all those thoughts and it's going to become a paper. Those that 15 minutes I spent every day become post, the post became a paper and the paper will probably become a book because I look at it and say it's 100 pages long. I'm pretty close to being a book. And along the way, I've also taken uh, taken the data and what I've learned and made it part of my teaching. So those 15 minutes a day have paid off immensely for me in terms of the post, the book, the paper, the teaching. And that is something I try to do with pretty much everything I do every day. I try to say, what are the, what are the multiple boxes I can check off by doing it? So when I valued GameStop two weeks ago, I did it because I was interested. I wanted to see what was going on. Hey, you know what? That GameStop valuation became part of a post and it's going to probably become part of my next, when I do the next edition of one of my valuation books, it'll probably be in there. So it's, it's, uh, I think that if you can, if each thing you do fits only one slot, you're going to run out of time. So the more you can spread your stuff and it'll take an extra couple of minutes every time you do things, the more productive I think you can get for the effort you put in. Yeah, that's that's certainly a great guideline. Do you have a research team or a bunch of editors that do most of that work for you, or you literally produce the content yourself? I am solo, and it reflects my weakness. I am a control freak. I have never been able to turn over any of the stuff I do to anybody else. I maintain my data, I write my stuff. I have never had a research assistant. The TAs I use in my class are more you know, ornaments than actual TAs because I don't use them very much. So I think that's more a reflection. Uh, so I'm not going to view that as a strength. It's just a reflection of me as a person. I like to be in control. I do most, uh, almost everything you see is a team of one, which is me. The good thing is yeah. I answer to myself and I'm very, very gentle with myself. It's, then it's even more incredible that you're, you're able to keep that up. I, I saw on your YouTube channel, this, um, as far as I could scroll down, they were four or five years old. And I think the, the, the first audience is probably your students um, when, you, when you actually do the lectures. But uh, it probably goes even further back. And this is an amazing array um, of knowledge that you, you uh, bring online for free. Uh, when did you decide to bring most of the lectures online on YouTube? Um, and why did you do it? You're going to be surprised by when I decided to bring it, to yeah. to record it. It was in the mid-90s, well before YouTube. Holy I smokes. used to have a camcorder set up in the back of my room. And the reason is very simple. I'm a teacher. That's how I describe myself. It is, it, it, it is my core in terms of what I do. So about 25 years ago, I said, if I'm preparing to teach a class of 250, which is my traditional class, wouldn't it be nice if I could teach 10,000? Teachers want bigger audiences, just like actors. So I said, you know what? I would like to have other people be able to watch the class. But this was the mid-90s. There was no online. There was no YouTube. So I actually got uh, a camcorder, recorded my class in the old VHS tapes, made five copies, and I put them in the library for people to come in and watch the videos that are not in the class. Somewhere in the 90s, I learned how to convert a VHS video into an online video. In those days, the resolution was just awful. But I said, you know what, I'm going to do it. So I started doing this about 20 years ago. And I came to YouTube late. And I'm sorry I came to YouTube as late as I did, because initially I used to use more traditional forums for delivering the videos. You put the MP4 file, let people download it, watch it. 
What YouTube brings actually is this capacity to deliver the videos to parts of the world where people don't have broadband because YouTube adjusts to whatever your capacity is. It allows more people to be able to watch it. So I started putting my classes on YouTube probably eight, nine years ago. And my blog posts, where I, I, I've been writing my blog since 2008, sounds new age, but basically it was just, this is what I think about markets. I started it during the 2008 crisis. And I just used to write. And in 2015, I don't remember what post it was, I said, I'm going to try to make a YouTube video, what I just said in the post, and add it on to the video, and add it on to the post. And I noticed something very interesting. It took about the same time to watch the video as it took to read the post. But there were four times more people watching the video than reading the post. And I said, you know what, maybe the world is changing under me. People are less willing to read and they're more willing to watch. So every post I do from this day on, so if you look at the, 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 the accumulation of YouTube videos, it's just incrementally. Each time I do a post, I do a video. And since I do about 30 to 40 posts a year, sometimes 50, it's 50 YouTube videos right there. You multiply by six, you're very quickly. So it's not as if I sat and said, I'd like to make a library of YouTube videos. It's almost accidental. It's happened because it's an add-on again to what I was doing in terms of writing the post. Yeah, you're really, really a machine in content production. It's, it's, I admire it a lot. And what I even more um, admire is what I found on your website. And you, you introduce yourself, um, and that's just probably in the second paragraph, you say, you know, education the publishing industry and also financial services are basically currently broken industries and ripe for disruption. And that reads to me like, you know, what entrepreneurs would put on their website, maybe a VC would talk about it too, but I, you barely see this in academia. Most professors would never say that. Um, maybe they would admit, it, admit to it privately, but they would never say it in public. Um, how popular does that make you within your own university or with other folks in academia? It's interesting because I, you know, if I were an entrepreneur, I'd have had more trouble because then you're make, trying to make money off education, off publishing. So upfront, I said, if I decide that I'm going to try to make, do a better way of education, but make money on it, it's going to make me less credible. Because everything I say, then people say, well, that you're trying to push your website or your way of teaching. So I decided early on that I was going to stay in the system. I was going to stay at a university. And I was going to disrupt from within. Now, because if you've ever been in a university setting, it is inertia. Nothing changes, nothing moves. In fact, I remember, you know, a couple of years ago, my wife and I were in Bologna, one of the very first universities, 900 years old. And I walked yep. into one of those old classrooms and I was surprised at how little things have changed in terms of how people teach 900 years later. Things don't change because universities, I describe them as lunatic asylums run by the inmates because the, the faculty run it for their best interest. So I said, you know what, I'm going to stay in the system, but I'm going to find a way to disrupt it from within. So the first time I did this, I took my class and made it available to the world. People asked me, did you check with NYU on whether this is okay? And I said, my view is, I'm going to do this first, and then I'm going to go to them and say, look, I'm making my classes available to the world for free. And if you have a problem, you might want to read your mission statement, because every university's mission statement says that its mission is about education. It's not collecting tuition. It's not doing research. 
I said, if you truly believe your mission statement, then, then tell me how you're going to ask me to pull these videos offline. Because then, and it's amazing. I've been able to do this for 20 years. I put my classes online. Once in a while, I will get somebody in the administration saying, you can't do that. This is our business. And because I don't make money, I'm able to say, look, I'm doing this because you told me my mission was education. I'm just accomplishing that mission. So I think with, with my colleagues and I have come to an uneasy, maybe you know, an okay place to be where they accept that I'm not on the same page as them. My intent is not to publish papers. I couldn't care less what my academia friends think about them. My job is a teacher. I'm going to educate. And because I carry more than my weight in the classroom, I teach large classes, I make their lives easier. They are okay with it because they can go back to doing what they want to do, which is write papers, get published, you know, move up the academic ranks. So in education, I haven't had a backlash. In publishing, it's been more difficult because publishers, of course, will not let you take a book and give it away for free. So I could not, for instance send a book off to Wiley or Prentice Hall or Pearson. So a couple of things. One is um, I said, look, I want, it's obviously not right for me to reproduce a book out there, but I can take the content that I have in the book and write about it in my blog. I can write it about, about it in my teaching notes and essentially deliver the same content. You don't own the content. You just own what I've written in the books. So there it's been a, a, a more te- a tense relationship because there are times where I've heard from publishers saying, you got to take that off your website because uh, that's that's very close to what's in your book. And, uh, you know, so far at least it's not gone to the final step. With financial services, one of the ways I've been able to live with the kind of arrangement I have with them is I have a lot of students who've gone into, I mean, I've been teaching 40 years. I've been people who run investment banks, who run equity research, so they're high up in the ranks. But I've never ever consulted with an investment bank or a a traditional bank because the minute you do that, then you have relationships. And then if you say something about investment banking being terrible at doing IPOs, you're going to hear from somebody saying, you can't do that. So with the financial services business, the fact that I've never had a formal relationship in terms of consulting or being on a board allows me to say things. And I think in a, in a strange way, that makes me more credible at investment banks because they know I'm not pushing. So if I'm talking Goldman Sachs, they're not thinking, hey, does he work for Morgan Stanley? Is that why he's doing this? They know I'm saying what's on my mind, and I'm often talking to people who were in my class 20, 25, 30 years ago who know exactly where I come from. It's amazing that you you preserved your own independence with such a vigor, and I think it's it's rare in these industries. I know that a bunch of professors um, that had success online on YouTube, they're now looking into either creating their own online, online university or they're joining online universities. And kind of this whole model becomes kind of YouTube is the freemium part, and then the premium part is then the course that you teach that gives you a certificate because so far we don't have a lot of certificates on YouTube. My, there is a couple of universities who've, who've, who've been playing with this. I think that's a really interesting field. This seems to be hard to create a business model around it. It's easy to get enough traction because obviously your content is fantastic and so are other professors. They, they really are the best in the world. And I think this is easy. easy in, in your field, you are the best in the world at valuing things and, and reading um, corporate financial statements. 
and I I always feel there is what's going to happen to education, you know, because we, we literally only need one professor like you who who knows so much about that particular topic. And that's that's going to be a great education for pretty much anyone, say the first, second, third year student. Um, they only need one professor with a YouTube video anywhere on the planet. So we don't need any other professors anymore. Um, do you think education will follow this internet model? There will be one company, maybe Google, who, who runs all of education? I think there is that that danger, right? In pretty much any business that technology takes over, you get a winner-take-all phenomenon, whether it's in Google with the search engine or, and in music. If you think about the music business, 25 to 30 years ago, the business got disrupted. And of course, we didn't go into record companies. So you didn't have those gatekeepers, which was the old music companies that said, we're going to pick the stars. We're going to put them on records. We're going to make you buy 16 songs, even though you wanted one. We broke the business or Apple iTunes broke the business. And for the following 15 years, the business had a 50% drop in revenues, rediscovered at least some of itself in streaming. But the business that's emerged is now a very different business. It's top heavy. In what sense, the very top stars make a disproportionately large percentage of the revenues. And I think, you know, this ties into a bigger issue in society, which is we are building these top heavy societies where you've got people worth 150 to 200 billion dollars, the very top and people at the bottom struggling to make, make the bills. So I am I'm wary about um, uh, about where this will end up in terms of an endgame, because no, the reality is if you're the University of Florida or the University of Tennessee and you're paying somebody $150,000 or $100,000 to be a professor in finance and you can pick up a polished full version of a finance course, a valuation course or a corporate finance course, which technologically is easy to do now for $5,000, you could replace the professor with three package courses. And in some schools, it's already happening. This is not a hypothetical, where some classes are being taught online or and essentially the, the school is cutting costs. So it is, it is an issue. And I have been preaching this to professors around the country. I do a session called Bar The Barbarians are at the Gate. And basically, it's to wake faculty up saying, guys, you might not realize how much risk you're under being of being outsourced. You don't realize the barbarian, because they said they're saying, well, people always pay to come to school. They have to be in my classroom. Without me, how will they get their degrees? And in, this, in, that, in that session, I talk about how every aspect of what a university offers, from classes, which is the easiest one, to the social network. I mean, let's face it, you know, when you think about the old, the reason you went to Harvard is not just to get the degree, but to get the network. The network, the entertainment value. People go to university because they can watch football games the weekend. The safety zone, you know, your parents want to send their kids off to university because they want them for four years to do stupid things and not get into too much trouble. I take each aspect and talk about how online entities are now supplying it. And I said, you're like the old cable company, you don't even realize that the game is changing right under your eyes. And I tell them, look, if all you're doing is taking somebody else's slides and reading them in front of a classroom, which unfortunately is how a lot of people in colleges teach, is they don't want to do the work. Yeah. 
know? Yeah. They get I said, if that's what you're doing, I'm coming after you. I'm coming after you, not directly, but my material is going to come after you because you're begging to get outsourced. So I tell yeah, people, yeah. you got to give something that that leads people to believe that it's something that says we need you still. Yeah, I guess the upside on this revolution is enormous, right? We, we deliver education for one hundredth, maybe one thousandth of the cost, and it's going to be instantly available anywhere on the planet, literally seconds being recorded. So if, if it's already there, technology, and all the pieces are already there, like you described, like this probably you have been seeing this for many, many years, but the pieces are already there, but nobody has seen it put together. And now with COVID, we are kind of we're forced to, and now the, the picture is emerging quite differently. And I think that the hard part is a lot of people play with the online university model, but making it in a way you actually can make money and you retain this this little thing of this this is something this gate everyone has to go through and pay me a thousand bucks i think this is this is hard what it is right is it might be the certificate it might be might be the social network who knows um i want to i want to go and take a look a little bit into your research um i i admit i didn't get that far and i make way more effort um um or i think i have better success with with other guests um because they don't have as much published. Uh, so I really struggled with, with uh, the material you have online. I looked into a couple of papers, and one thing you 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 seem to focus on, um, maybe that's just what's being picked up more, is the equity risk premium. And uh, it is a way to... to um, to showcase how what risk, or to me, and maybe I understand that wrong, what that risk that investors are seemingly taking against the risk-free um, um, return that they would get with bonds uh, minus inflation. And uh, I was curious, the, you put a lot of effort in, you tracked this across different countries, you tracked it across a long timeline, and you've discussed it in length. Um, does it have a predictive value? Can you um, make forecasts from there about the next five years or the next 10 years? I, uh, let me back up first and talk a little bit about why this number fascinates me. In almost every everything we do, we we sometimes are in the search. But give me one numbers, one number that kind of because in every discipline there are multi, if you're a doctor there are, you know you do a test there are hundreds of things that come back. So what's the one number that that that? And with stocks, the equity risk premium is a is the one number that tells me more about stocks than any other number. I'll give you contrast. A lot of people who track stocks look at PE ratios. That's a big thing. Of the PE ratio low or high, and they say that's yeah. a number. But PE ratios have a problem, which is when interest rates change, the PE ratio you used to think was a reasonable ratio then it no longer applies. So PE ratios fail because they don't factor in interest rates or they don't factor in growth. Equity risk premiums capture how, how much people are willing to pay for stocks relative to, t- to what you can make risk-free. So it brings in the level of rates and given the growth. So in a sense, it's a consolidated number. And the reason it matters is it's a price of risk in the equity market. If people get more scared, that number will rise. So as an example, between February 14th and March 23rd of 2020, which is when the peak of the COVID crisis hits market, markets were melting down, the equity risk premium for the S&P 500 almost doubled. That's almost never happened before. I mean, the closest we came was in 2008. Doubling basically means people are just terrified. And then for yeah. some reason, over the rest of the year, all of that increase melted away. So something clearly took that fear away from investors. I spent the whole year thinking about what that could be. But I, the only reason I was aware of it happening was because I was tracking the equity risk premium. 
So that's why I think it's fascinating. But the question of whether it has predictive value, that's trickier because the question you're really asking is, can I time markets based on equity risk premiums? Yeah, can I make money? I don't use I don't use I I don't use them for predictive value because I'm not a market timer. I'm a stock picker. I use equity risk premiums to value individual companies today. As a stock picker, I'm looking for cheaper, expensive companies. I'm not asking is the market overall cheap or expensive for a simple reason. I'm not very good at market timing. Equity risk premiums increase over time. They decrease over time. There are lots of people who use variants of equity risk premiums to decide whether they should be buying stocks or not. But maybe they know things I don't. But from my experience, I've discovered it doesn't work for me. And I've learned as an investor, you got to go with what works for you. And for me, I compute the equity risk premium because it helps me value individual companies today, which will then help me pick stocks. I don't use the equity risk premium as a proxy for, hey, should I be in stocks or should I be in something else? Yeah. Well, one thing, well, that is just my my theory of what happened with the markets. And I was stunned like everyone else that it went up so quickly again, the public markets, but the real economy doesn't look that way, depending on where you go. I'm currently in Miami, and here it looks like inflation is running wild. You can't get into a restaurant without a two-hour wait, even like the, the not-so-great ones. Um, I, I tried to get drinks at my hotel and it took me like an hour to even get a drink. That's And I, the room rates are $700. And the, the, the inflation and the, the pressure on that little piece of what's open of America and that's actually warm now is, is amazing. So um, I think well, when, when I live in San Francisco, which has been shut down and the real economy has been shut down the whole time, so I think our, our expectation, my own expectation was that the real economy will, to some extent, show itself in stock prices. But I think what actually happened is that people thought it's going to be much worse. Um, and COVID is, we, we relatively quickly figured out that COVID is bad, but it's not airborne Ebola and we're not all going to die. And I think this was baked into the, in, in, in that moment in March, we baked in that we're all going to die and the economy is never going to recover. And then we realized, oh, well, Google and, and Apple and all of these big companies, they actually they're doing pretty well. They're doing. They kind of absorbing all this restaurant revenue, so to speak, and I. That's kind of my my personal gut feeling of what actually happened. Um, I don't know if you agree with this. Um, maybe it doesn't really explain it. No, I think that there is some truth to what you're saying, but it's a two layered impact. We talked about the how society says the haves and the have nots. This has been a pretty sanguine crisis. If you're one of the haves. Right, you still have your job. You might have to do a Zoom sessions from home, but you're still getting your paycheck. You're still, you know, and uh, so you and you have money to invest. And let's face it, the people who drive asset prices, stock prices, bond prices are the people in the top twenty percent, not the bottom eighty percent. This crisis, I think, has been devastating for for people at the lower end of the spectrum. But then are the ones buying stocks. So if you're, the, some of the disconnect comes from that. The second is the market is a predictive mechanism. And you're right. The market is looking forward and saying, you know what? This too shall pass. We're all going to open up. Restaurants are going to fill up. And I don't think it's a bad assumption. What I have a problem with, and this is, I think, the word you used what was, I think, the, the key word for me that I'm going to track this year, is when that happens, what's going to happen to inflation? I mean, already you can see it in Miami. Prices shooting up. But we're sending people $2,000 checks and uh, the economy actually opens up and actually starts to pick up steam. And they go after fewer and fewer goods and services. Inflation could very quickly start to come back. And that could be deadly for stocks. 
Stocks can live with an economy that's dead in the water, but stocks are incredibly damaged by inflation coming back, gangbusters. And that, I think, is what we have to worry about this year, is as the economy comes back, what's inflation going to do? Really curious about that, how you read the tea leaves there, because Michael Burry came out, I think, this week and said, you know, there is a good chance for Weimar-style inflation. And I grew up in Germany, and I saw the billions of dollars of my grandparents' um, notes that they, they showed to me. And uh, there was Bill Ackman today. He came out and said, you know, there's a high risk. This is going to happen. Exactly. You know, several hundred percent of inflation. Um, and on the other side, we see the CPI, CPI numbers. And I was I was listening to David Rosenberg and he said, you know what, the, the CPI numbers are basically it, big input is rent, which is definitely dropping everywhere. Big input is um, commodities, which dropped for quite some time, maybe not as much now. So for consumers, the CPI seems to be extremely stable, if not dropping further. But still, everyone is really concerned about the money printing, which we shouldn't be because we, we actually are in a deflation. Everyone is just crazy and inflation will never happen. So I'm really, really thrown. There's really good arguments seemingly to me. I'm not. I'm a layman on, on both sides. Um, how do you read the tea leaves? Well, I don't see what I mean, I'm not seeing thousands of percent or even hundreds of 10 percent inflation will be enough to finish us off. I mean, remember, the wow. last time we had 10 percent inflation was the 1970s. In the yep. 1970s was a lost decade for investing, stocks, bonds. You know. And I think that could, could we have double-digit inflation? I think it, it is a possibility. I mean, clearly the CPI is not showing it now, but there are two problems to the CPI. The first is it's sticky. It's not that there's any bias here, but it's sticky. The basket doesn't change enough to reflect where you're actually spending your money. And it's, it's a lagged indicator. By the time the CPI heats up, yeah. The, 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 the cows already escaped from the barn. It, it's too late. So I think, and, and I think, th and, and my problem with markets is right now, markets are making two assumptions that to me are at war with each other. One is they're assuming the economy will come back strongly. Whether it's because of the new trillion dollar, $1.9 trillion package, or whether it's because the economy will, you know, people are going to, COVID's going to end, vaccines are going to roll out, the economy will come back strongly. I don't have a problem with that assumption by itself. The second assumption they're making is while all of this great stuff is happening to the economy, rates will continue to stay low. And to me, those assumptions are at war with each other. Because if the inflation comes back strongly, I can almost guarantee that rates are going to rise. Whether they would rise to 3% or 5%, we can debate. No. But I think the reason for this is, is a fixation we've developed over the last decade. And this fixation is something I think you were planning to ask me about, which is about the Fed. That the Fed somehow controls interest rates. Yesterday, the big rise in stock prices came about because Jerome Powell, and he didn't even say it in those words. He said, the economy is weak. We're going to do what we can as the Fed to keep rates low. But if you think about what the Fed actually does, it sets a Fed funds rate. It doesn't set the T-bill rate, the T-bond rate, your mortgage rates. Those are set by demand and supply. Nothing the Fed does, even the hundreds of billions that it claims to buy, it's just a dent in this huge market. If the economy comes back, I don't see a way that rates stay at 1%. In fact, even from the start of this year to today, think of how much rates have already risen without the Fed saying or doing a thing. Rates have risen because the economy is delivering better numbers. So I think my problem with the market is it's being internally inconsistent about what it's assuming about the future. Either the economy is coming back 
and rates are rising, or the economy is not coming back and rates are staying low. But you can't mix and match those two. And I think that's going to be the test for markets this year. And you're going to have days like yesterday and today play out over and over again as the optimists and the pessimists fight this out. Yeah, I think everybody kind of agrees that unless we go Japan style, which I think everybody seems to be trying to not be not match that example, the rate's definitely going to go up. And there's either it goes up because of inflation or because growth comes back, right? So it, there could be two different triggers. Probably there's more. But two that are being discussed right now. No, I think that's good to have it as two triggers because that, I think, tells you which trigger you have to worry about more. If it's real growth-driven, I'm less worried. And here's why. When you have real growth-driven rise in rates, rates will rise, but so will earnings. Earnings will be higher than expected because you're getting real growth. If it's inflation-driven, we're in trouble because rates will rise. Real earnings are not going up very much. And then we're going to get squeezed. And that's exactly what happened between 1976 and 1980 in the U.S. is you got you, you got in those pincer movements of high inflation and low real earnings growth. And that, I think, is going to be a much more. De- and that's why I picked on the word inflation when you, when you used it earlier, because to me, inflation driven rises in interest rates are deadly. Real growth driven rises in interest rates I can live with. Well, a lot of people, and that was Michael Burry's argument, said, say, go even further, and they say, well, it's actually the rates are one thing, and you know, it it might be it might be a big impact, but it's relatively small for consumers if they are one percent or three percent, right? I mean, there is an impact, but it's for consumers, it's probably not not a lot of direct input. the The big problem that he he mentioned is, um, and I think this is is something I've been going on and on on this podcast is. A lot of people are kind of giving up of the idea of the dollar, especially in the U.S., probably less outside of the U.S., but the Europeans have that too. They basically feel the what's going on in the U.S., we've become a banana republic. We have terrible infrastructure, our government doesn't work, and what's even worse, the people kind of have abandoned the government and the idea of a real dollar. Everyone now believes a Bitcoin, not everyone, right? It's a tech thing, it's a Silicon Valley thing, but it's spreading out outwards pretty quickly. And the expectation is, you know, um, and maybe that's what, what I usually say about entrepreneurship, but we are creating the self-fulfilling um, prophecy that we say, oh, we the, the dollar is gone anyways, right? So we all change our assumption about the next five years because we feel the dollar is not worth anything anymore. And then inflation just happens, right? So it happens because we lose faith and nobody wants to save anymore. And suddenly we have 10%, 20 30% inflation. Well, I think, you know, they're all linked together. It's a circle. It's not a sequence where, you know, one starts and the other. So this, what I mean by a circle is higher inflation creates a weaker dollar. Weaker dollar creates less confidence. Less confidence creates higher inflation. So that's how you get into these spirals. So yeah. there is, and I, to me, the, the Bitcoin is a side issue from this because Bitcoin is not just a U.S. investor. It's a global phenomenon. In fact, Bitcoin enthusiasts outside the U.S. probably vastly outnumber the Bitcoin enthusiasts in the U.S. A lot of people in Asia, for instance, are huge believers in Bitcoin. But collectively, think about Bitcoin. It's penny change in the global economy. Penny change. It's a trillion. I mean, even at its peak, it's a trillion dollars. That's half the size of the largest company in the world, one publicly traded company. It's more a symbol of of people's uneasiness than it is a real cryptocurrency. Right. It's because if you think about it as a currency, it's a horrifically bad currency. It's a currency that nobody uses for transactions. I mean, Tesla can claim that you can use Bitcoin. But I, I you know I throw this challenge out. I've I've given talks at Bitcoin Enthusiast Conference. I throw this challenge out. 
I tell, tell me how many of you have actually used Bitcoin to buy a house, buy a car, or even buy your lunch. It's you know, terrible. How people, no. It's, and, it's and gold. It's that, digital yeah, gold, right? You can't use it, it in daily even, life. At least gold has two things going for it. One is its staying power. It's been around thousands of years. It's a collectible. And second, it moves in the other direction. It's one of the few investments that have been February 14th and March 23rd, when stocks were melting down that held its value. That's gold's yeah. enduring argument. You know what Bitcoin did between those five weeks? It was down 50%. It behaved like very risky stock. So not only is it a terrible currency, it's a terrible replacement for gold because when you replace gold with something, you want it to hold its value, a Picasso, a collectible. And you know, on, on both dimensions, Bitcoin's fair, but how come people are piling into Bitcoin? Because there are people who've essentially lost faith not just in currencies, but in institutions. I describe yeah. Bitcoin as designed by paranoids for paranoids. Yeah. Because it was designed in November of 2008 at the height of that banking crisis when we'd lost faith. And it shows in almost every aspect of Bitcoin, right? You trust nobody. That's why we have miners mining transactions to make sure they work. So I think Bitcoin, I what what concerns me about Bitcoin is it reveals to me that there's an underlying fairly large group, many young people, mostly 25 to 35-year-olds, who've essentially given up on currencies, institutions, and everything we built up in the 20th century. But the thing is, they haven't replaced yep. it with something else. And, and when you saw the GameStop phenomenon, you saw this play out, which is, there's really nothing like, there's no such thing as value. Price is whatever we say it's going to be. And I think that that is a very, very damaging development for both society and markets. It definitely will create a lot of volatility. And then, you know, I've, I've, I've been um, outlining this. I feel there is a, a market um, slowdown in opportunities for everyone who's under 40 or 50 currently. And uh, this has shown, and it's now really shown in, in people's psyche, at the, the earning opportunities, the opportunity to buy a house in the Bay Area, there is no, no opportunity for pretty much anyone unless you're a billionaire, which can happen in Silicon Valley, but it's still relatively few people who get there by definition. They can't all be billionaires unless then we have Weimar. And uh, you, you can't raise a family on most options that are readily available. Right? There's obviously exception. Um, but I think for a huge chunk, and that's almost 80, 90% of the population, they really struggle with this. And it's probably, and, and I think there's maybe a gender gap in this. Um, certainly there's more men have more an issue with this than women, but probably we all feel these effects. And now that we, we, we kind of disassociate ourselves from these institutions, as you say, I think what what, what I felt is going to happen in last June is we're going to see a real revolution happening, right? So we, 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 we talk about the capital storming of the revolution. I didn't feel it was one. But I felt like all these institutions kind of, they either compromised or we don't, they're kind of useless. There's a lot of things that, that technology is changing. And I think we, we, we now see this in, in we're giving up on the dollar. One thing that, that, that kind of almost convinced me the other way is someone said, you know, there's way fewer large transactions because people buy less houses, for instance, right? And I mean, we, we, see, we see at least there's not, not necessarily a big growth curve there. The velocity of money is coming down. So money changes hand less often, which in turn reduces infl inflation quite a bit. So people might give up on the dollar. Yeah, but that's a narrow definition because it bases it on transactions. I mean, we use our credit cards on things we never used to use credit cards on. 
I mean, think yeah. about it, right? Or DoorDash. I mean, the, we used to walk to the restaurant, maybe pay with cash. Who does that? You know, everything is on DoorDash, Amazon. I think it's a different kind of velocity rather than the old, you know, let's see how many transactions. Now, I think that the mystery is, especially over the last 12 years, why hasn't there been more, more inflation? That really is what a lot of economists are struggling with. Because if you look at old monetary theory, you keep printing money, uh, it has to show up at inflation. And for the last 12 years, it's not shown up. And the question, therefore, that many feel that needs to be answered now is, why should this time be any different? And I think what's different about this time is, since 2008, we've had excess capacity in this economy, uh, you know, both the global and the U.S. economy. And I think we've been able to do things that historically would have gotten us into trouble and get away with it. And I think the question is, when do we hit that capacity constraint? The second is, the U.S. The can biggest do technology, most- yeah, if I may interrupt, the biggest technology we, we, we discovered was China. You know, it was the, the one billion people who rose to, to you know, middle, middle-income company, and that is a ginormous amount of, of the price. In 2003 and 2013, it carried commodity markets single-handedly up 30, you know, oil, cement, you name the commodities, China was the answer to why are prices rising. That ended in 2013-14 because China hit its growth you know, wall as well. You know? And I think that that's the thing that I think is under all of this, which is there's only so much growth in the global economy. Let's be real about this. The global economy can't grow 10% a year or we'll basically we'll have climate change overnight. So, we do, so if you take the fact that the global economy can grow about 2 to 3% a year, in the old days, when India and China were non-players in this game, you took two billion people, two and a half billion people out of the equation because they lived on subsistence wages and they really didn't. And the U.S. and the Europe could basically grow at five percent. Was going to be okay because you had enough growth to go around. If you let China grow at ten percent a year, and if you add India to it growing at seven percent a year, and there's only so much growth in the global economy, it doesn't require a mathematician to see that the parts of the world that used to be, the developed parts of the world that got used to growing at 3 to 4% are now long-term looking at growth rates of not just one, not zero, but perhaps minus 2 to 3% a year. Why is that? I mean, I grew up in Europe, and that is it. That is a common theory in Europe by economists, and it's accepted socially. And I always felt like there is an ex- American exceptionalism and I always felt this was a big part why I went to America. I felt like there is this positive why, but this self-fulfilling prophecy of we generate enough growth out of either it usually comes out of population growth. This is obviously gone, but there's technology growth, right? So this productivity growth can really bring us forward. We've used that to take advantage. So in a sense, the U.S. has separated itself from Europe and Japan. By yeah. using that energy that it gets from being a laboratory for disruption, for allowing young companies to start and change it. I mean, that still remains the U.S.'s biggest strength. There isn't another part of the world. If you're a disruptor, I mean, I tell people, if Elon Musk were raised, I mean, he was born in South Africa, but if he'd been raised in a different part of the world and he was running a business, he'd probably be in jail in any other part of the world simply because he's a rule breaker. Now, Travis Kalachnik would probably never have been able to make it to having a company because somewhere along the way, somebody would have said, hey, that's a, that, you couldn't have bro- broken that rule. The U.S. accepts that kind of entrepreneurial spirit, but the 
problem ultimately is no matter how much technology you create and how much disruption you create, you can change the way people do business, but there's only so much wealth to spend globally. So after disruption is done, Uber might triple the size of the car service business, but it comes at the expense of other companies. So for for when Uber wins, in a strange way, GM has to kind of give up some of its value. So it's not a zero-sum game, but I'm saying it can't be a pure positive-sum game. Well, what technology does is create positive. For every plus that technology creates, there are minuses that it creates that might not be visible right away. Net, I think it's, I mean, I think of it as a positive. But I think ignoring those minuses has created some problem. I mean, I think of the the political problems that come out of the disruption we talked about. And much of what we've seen in politics over the last decade, I think, comes from not being willing to look under the surface and saying, what are the costs of letting technology kind of win this game, disrupt businesses, and how do we mitigate those costs? We might not be able to go away. How do we help those people who've been who've been paying that price of technology winning? I mean, simplest example is I love Amazon as a company. I think it's the most amazing company ever created and built up. But I also think that as Amazon has gotten to where it is, it's created a lot of side costs for society. Starting with those empty malls, the parking lots, uh, the people who used to work at those brick and mortar stores who really don't have any technological know-how to go work elsewhere. And I think that is something that we're still coming to terms with economically, politically. And I think that that's for, I I think for this, this coming decade, that's one of the issues we're going to have to wrestle with is what do we do about those costs? And how do we make those people come back into society? Because many of them have given up too. They've said, nothing I can do. I mean, this is a different world. So whether it's through Andrew Yang's uh, guaranteed income, which I don't think is going to go the distance because it's not just a loss of income, it's a loss of self-worth, right? If, if I take your job away and you have nothing to do, I could pay you $1,000 a month or $1,500 a month to stay home. But you're not made whole again. Because part of how we define ourselves is by what we do. But as well, you know, that like when, when we look at this as a digital revolution, there's the industrial revolution, the parallels will, will be very befitting, right? So we might lose 6% of jobs every year, but we might win 8%. There's not the same people and they're not the same skills. So there is a time lag and there's, there's lots of difficulties. But this, this is the only way, you know. When, when you look at these long-term tech, technological growth rates, they seem to be pretty stable and they translate into productivity growth. I, I, I think this change is in, unstoppable. I'm not saying we can uh, we yeah. need to stop the change or even slow it down. I think we need to take care of the debris that the change, because even the Industrial Revolution sure. created a whole host of costs. But in Dickinson, in, uh, in the England of the, of, of the 1700s and 1800s, you were written off, you know, 30% of the population, you lo- you know, you are no longer needed. No, who cares? And I think we can't, we can't do that. I think we need to kind of think about, I, you know, as this change happens, even though it's, you know, I agree with you, it's net good. I think it's going to happen anyway. We have to think about what can we do to kind of at least reduce the pain of those people who be left behind? Because there are people being left behind. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I agree. I mean, I I, I'm beca- I became a big believer. David Orban actually com- uh, convinced me in the prior episode that UBI 
is something we should really take a good look at. And whatever the number is, if it is 2,000, 5,000, 10,000, 2,000, 1,000, that's probably something to, to be figured out. But what, when we take that example of people working on a farm and worrying about food that they wouldn't have anymore because they're not on a farm, they're very far away, um, the, the Industrial Revolution has shown us that there's an anxiety and the rise of anxiety because we are further away from food production um, centers. But we rarely had issues with food production or even distribution the last 100 years. It's not always been the case, but I think we've gotten pretty good at this. And I think the same will be true in this revolution. So there will be, will be certainly big anxiety because you don't have a job and you only have money and you only have shelter and you only have food and you only have 24-hour uh, entertainment. But maybe you don't have a purpose anymore in that moment, but it will come back because there's going to be, you're going to train AIs. Well, I'm a natural optimist. I think, you know, you know yeah. 80 years from now, we, we, we were put back on this earth. It is going to be, have, it is going to have been changed dramatically by technology. In fact, I was just reading this morning about the smart cities that Toyota is building in, uh, in Japan. They're going to test out AI and automated driving, and it's, it's going to be a self-contained city of 2,000 people. And my guess is that's not going to be a city of 2000. That might be how society looks 80 years from now. So I think the question is, as we make this transition, we need to make sure that we're doing it in a way where we don't destroy ourselves. Because you see it in the way we become, we become every, the way I describe it is every argument now becomes personal and political. You know, and, uh, and I, I, I know because now, I tell my students, you know, disagree, but we can disagree, uh, but without being disagreeable. And I think that that's, um, and part of that disagreeable nature of every single conversation now is this us versus them. You're on the right side or the wrong side. And some, I mean, we can't blame technology for this entirely. It's something that society overall has been evolving towards. But I think it's something that we have to fix because we want to get to that nirvana 80 years from now we got to get there together we can't get there as two tribes at war with each other which unfortunately is what we seem to have become i don't know i mean maybe that's what's required um i don't know if you said that i heard that on a podcast the other day it's really maybe time for a couple of states to drop out of the union. You know, it's like a Brexit in the U.S. Would it be such a big deal? Probably not. You know, they, they will speak the same language. You might have to get a visa to get there. Uh, and then a couple of years later, we see if they're more successful or less. You know, it's, it wouldn't be such a big deal if California drops out and takes, I don't know, New York with it, for instance. Um, so I, I grew up in eastern Germany and I saw like two 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 country or one country that was the same split up and then it, it could you could pretty quickly see what competition and market forces do to one country and what they didn't do to the other. And uh, that was very obvious only 30 years in, right? So I think you could defend being a, a communist in the early 70s in Eastern Germany. But by the early 80s, it was basically a position no one would share with you anymore. And so I see a similar thing right now. I think some people just need to try out. We have a, there are lots of parallels that we, we have a big societal change driven by technology. Maybe some people just need to try out a little more socialism, which is great. And then, you know, maybe, maybe it works this time. Maybe you live um, 20 years of partisan on both sides and they'll experiment on both sides and discover that being in the middle is probably more productive than or finding some melded new solution is the no, maybe that's you know yeah. politically maybe that's the end game. That that is, I think, the optimistic side of me hopes that that's what will happen. Is yeah. we'll find a way to come up with a new consensus that might not reflect the consensus of either side right now, and that might take time. So, 
No, I, I, you know, overall, I am an optimist. I believe we will end at the right place, but um, I want to minimize the kind of side damage we create getting there. And sure. um, to do that, I think we need to we need to think about at least some of the consequences of technology because technology, I think, has created uh, and it's not something it's set out to do. It's the nature of technology. It creates some kind the kind of economy technology creates is very different from the kind of economy that the old industrial economy created. And we have to yeah. think about what, in, given that economy and things like you know, universal basic income reflect this new economy that might be coming, what are the best policies that we can think of adopting? How will markets evolve? How will, you know, and I think that's something we'll have to make mistakes and learn. Well, talking about the end game, there's another end game. I, I really want to pick your brain because I'm pr probably not, I'm not, smart enough to understand that. I feel like what, what we're doing with the Fed, and that is modern monetary theory. And I, I understand the gold standard doesn't serve us so well anymore. Um, do Bitcoin is basically a gold standard, maybe even stricter gold standards, or gold basically is out of production for most of the time. Um, but the, the Fed has run a policy that seemingly has created um, the zombie economies of lots of old com companies um, were airlines is the prime example of lots of that, but are not allowed to go out of business ever. Banks can, cannot go out of business. Um, even small pieces of that chunk um, are not allowed to go out of business. So we created this, this zombie economy and give them free money, basically, at negative interest rates. Sometimes even they get the money just to hoard it and hopefully pay it back. But if they don't pay it back, that's okay, too. That all sounds like socialism to me. You know, the airlines and socialism, they're all government-funded. They're terrible, but they run for like hundreds of years. The hotels, the restaurants, they're all terrible, but they will never go out of business. That's, I feel, is something that the Fed did. Maybe it's policy and maybe it's actually the, 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 the administrations that have done this. So I'm really at, at loss to describe why are we so crazily focused on keeping these old companies in business instead of getting creative destruction and getting competition? What do we do in the restaurant industry? Why can't we do it to banks? Why is it so scary? Well, I think, you know, it's funny that you should, that when you talked about the Fed, you feel that it's that it's the old, more zombie companies that have benefited from Fed policy. Because when I talk to old-time value investors, you know what they tell me, right? They feel that the <laughs> Fed is what's allowed tech companies to soar. Sure. So their argument it's is... true. That, well, that's the side and, effect. And, that's true. Yeah. yeah. And I think that um, th th there are a couple of things. One is... Um, we are still the most creatively destructive economy in the world. More companies go bankrupt in the U.S. than the rest of the world put together. Europe is, of course, the haven for zombie companies. And it's a haven for zombie companies because not only does it keep them alive, it actually actively makes it more difficult for young disruptive companies to come out of nowhere yeah. and challenge them. So in the U.S., if you think about brick-and-mortar retail, Think about how much of brick and mortar retail has gone bankrupt already, right? And now, yesterday I was reading Fry's Electronics. Now yeah. I remember going to Fry's when I taught at UC Berkeley. I mean, this was this has been a, and it's a you know technology retail. It's almost ironic that you live in the heart of technology and technology, but Fry's announced it's going out of business. I will wager coming out of COVID that two thirds of brick and mortar retail is going to be gone. And, and it's going to be gone, not because, they, you know, the rates are too high. It's just that the business is broken and they can't even make money. Forget about paying debt. They can't make money. Has the yeah. Fed spent too much time trying to save companies? It, in, Mar in February, March, I was concerned about how much of the focus 
of both the first bailout package and the Fed's announcements were about saving Boeing and the airlines. Now, Boeing and the airlines, if you put them together collectively as a part of the U.S. economy, are a tiny piece of the U.S. economy. They're a big part of our daily daily lives. But I think that a lot of the initial energy was, let's save these companies. These companies need to be saved. And I think that might have been the initial reason why the Fed announced its private lending support, the backstop that it announced March 23rd. is But I think the actual money that the Fed has spent on that backstop is trivial. The amount of money the Fed has spent. You know what it did, though? When the Fed said that they were willing to do this, it opened the doors to private lenders to lend to these companies. Maybe they're falling back on the assumption that if things go bad, the Fed will bail us out. And that's not healthy. That's the reason lenders are lending to Boeing and the airlines. You're creating a subsidized economy. And we don't have enough money in the world to subsidize bad companies that can't make money and keep lending the money. So am I concerned about the Fed? I'm concerned about how central it's become to almost everything we talk about in markets. I'm sick and tired of talking about FOMC meetings. Frankly, I know everything that people want, to, they don't want to talk about earnings or cash flows or growth or business models. They want to talk about, hey, what's the next federal open market committee going to do? That's a very unhealthy place for an economy and a market to be. I mean, look at how much time congressmen and senators are spending trying to tell Jerome Powell he should keep rates low. As if that is going to be what drives the economy back to growth. But I think it reflects, I think, this fixation, this obsession we have with the Fed as the movers of all things. And the Fed has itself to blame because it's made itself, hey, we're the saviors. We'll decide what lives, what dies. And that is, I mean, you called it socialism. It's, it's in a sense, it's antithetical to almost everything I think of in a capitalist economy. We have let competition play out. The winners and the losers basically get, get picked by the market. You shouldn't be out there trying to change this. And on a broader scale, the, what the Fed has done is it's enriched borrowers at the expense of lenders. I mean, that's, that's a generic yeah. theme. And the U.S. had trouble with people saving money before 2008. If I were a person, I mean, why would I want to save money? You know, what, what's the point? No, and I can borrow money at 1.5%. Why would I bother saving money? So long-term, we're doing severe damage to the things that we need to do as an economy to grow, is we need people to save more money. We need them to think about investing as a way of preserving and growing wealth, not as a way of getting rich. And that's not the lesson a lot of people are getting from this market. Well, I always feel the Fed has become this politburo. You know, as closer you are to the Fed, as more you can guess it, as more you can figure out where the next, where the new money is coming from, as much will stay in your pockets, right? So as Goldman Sachs, they don't care about trading anymore. They, they, they care about being close to the, to the Fed meetings. And <laughs> that is definitely not healthy. And it's, it's I, what, what I can't figure out, my, what, what is really going on, is the Fed has it become so powerful because it can, and we are the reserve currency, and we can print as much money as we want. But on the other hand, we could have done this 50 years ago. So why, what happened, and this is kind of like Peter Thiel's theory, and I've been thinking about a lot, is we have... This, this low productivity growth that started in the 70s. And since then, we have it's it slowed down quite a bit from what we've seen the years prior, um, at least 45 and 75. Um, and also, you know, the early earlier in that century. 
And what was what was really interesting to me was to see, and this for low productivity growth is low growth rates of the economy because our population hasn't grown that much either. So the question is, are we are we kind of band-aiding this low productivity growth um, in most sectors outside of technology? Obviously, you know, Google and Facebook, they all, we, have to, we have to exclude those and also China. They've grown like, like crazy. But outside of these few success stories, and they're getting pretty big, but they're still only 10, 15% of the whole GDP, um, is the, the problem that we have low productivity, and that's why the, the Fed is like painting over and, and printing more money and band-aiding until everyone is waiting for the end game, for the big bang, until you know big inflation gets rid of the Fed, basically, and we all go to Bitcoin. Or is it the other way around? Is the is the Fed an evil power, so to speak? You know, when you look into a lot of conspiracy theories, the Fed is the evil power who kind of tries to ruin the American economy and with, with cheap money. I don't know if this is even if you can do this, but is the Fed policy the the originating problem, or is our low productivity growth where we don't have explanations for the problem? I think the low productivity growth is the starting point. I don't think the Fed is. I, I in fact, most institutions, in my view, are too inept to be evil. You know, whether it's investment banks, yeah. hedge funds. Sure. I mean, I've, I've yeah. been there. I, I know exactly what, where, how decisions are going. These are not, I mean, if, the, if these were villains, they're more like, you know, Wiley Coyote, not uh, Joker from Batman. I mean, they're not, they're not capable yeah. of having that kind of thing. But I think the low productivity started, um, I mean, I, I think that's the start of the question is where, why is productivity low? Why isn't it increasing more? One reason I think is at some point you hit a ceiling. You can improve productivity only so much in some businesses. And many of those businesses where you see low productivity, it's just that you, you've hit a ceiling. There's not much more to go with the kinds of existing ways of doing things. And that's why technology, in a sense, is disrupting those businesses, is those businesses are so stuck in their ways. In fact, I think, you know, I, I'm, you know, I think Tesla is, at, at today's price is vastly overpriced. But as a company, Let's face it, it's changed the automobile business, right? I mean, in a, in a sense, it's yeah. it's kind of reinvented the business and said, look, you know, maybe we don't need to build these, you know, huge assembly plants that produce, you know, that have the capacity to produce a million cars, even though we're going to produce only 250,000 because, you know, I'm so the old auto companies did because they thought economies of scale are going to kick in and our productivity is going to improve. But it turned out it didn't do that much. So maybe Tesla is looking at it saying, maybe that's not the way to go. Maybe the way we get more productive is to have low capital intensity models that try to get production at the margin by investing in whatever we need to. So I think we might be in a transition phase on productivity. And that's part of what we call disruption is that the old models have kind of hit their their end game and we're trying to replace them with newer models which is which is which is an upbeat component to it because as the new models come in you're going to see productivity kick up again the question is where are the gains from productivity going to go are they going to go to the capital providers they're going to go to the the labor that goes in so you're going to go back into the old question of who gets what part of the pie but at least sure. the pie will be bigger uh, it's a really interesting you mentioned Tesla, which I call my favorite accounting fraud. I always feel it's a major accounting fraud out there. But on the other hand, there's so many accounting frauds now that I would say are an accounting fraud that I, if, if I would have to give someone my money, then I think Tesla and Elon Musk would be my first choice. So maybe that's what investors think and it skyrockets so much. Everyone bakes that in. You're the accounting expert. What do you think of Tesla? Is it a fraud or is it, is it really dreading the line? They play a little close, fast and loose with the with the rules, like every young company. 
right? And you take any, you take Airbnb and you look at the numbers. When you add back stock-based compensation, of course you're playing again. Don't tell me it's not. Yeah. I mean, basically you're paying your, your employees with stock because you don't have the cash. It is an expense. So why would you add it back and say it's not an expense? So I think yeah. th from that perspective, they play fast and loose with the rules. But the reality is if you wanted to, you could fix them. Right? If you're looking at it and you don't stay with the proverbial earnings per share, which is a lazy analyst, you know, one number that you watch and you look at the whole thing, they actually give away the fraud and say, this is, or if you want to call it fraud, this is, this is what we're doing to play games with earnings. You can yeah. play along with us and act like we make, made money, or you can do it yourself and discover we lost money. So to me, the bigger problem, I think, with Tesla is not that they are playing fast and loose with the rules. It's... It's, it's what I call, it's become the ultimate story stock, which is nobody gives you a tangible reason anymore why they buy Tesla. You ask them, why do you buy Tesla? It's the greatest company in the face of the earth. It is going to be the future. It's going to be automated driving. And you push them on it. They can't give you specifics because there are no specifics. They're letting a story drive their decision. And the reality is they want to buy Tesla because they want to make money. And they've seen other people make money. They've been left out. They can't think of a good reason why you should be buying at 800. So they'll give you a story instead. And I think that's, it's as, you know, it's, uh, it's as old as time and people really want to do something. You really can't stop them from doing it. And they will find ways to convince themselves that they did it for all the right reasons. And a lot of people on Tesla have convinced themselves that the right reason is this is the future of automobiles. Now, that it's going to find a way. And I don't see how that story actually plays out in the numbers that would justify what they're paying up front. Yeah, I have, I have serious doubts that ever will make money, but it will stay the, the, the story is stock, so to speak, because Elon is good at this and he has the following. And I, I had another podcast guest and he was almost like a disciple of, of Elon. He, they're, they're not related. They're not even in the same company, but he literally knew every word Elon has said the last three years. I'm like, well, isn't that a little much? I mean, you're an intellectual yourself and you're successful what you're doing. Shouldn't you like be more critical? He's like, yes, I thought about it, but he's absolutely right. I'm like, okay, <laughs> so much for that. I mean, he's very convincing, right? So there is a lot of, um, a lot of energy that has come together. Um, I'm, I'm really amazed. You do a lot of valuation analysis for companies that have very, very interesting business model. Like you did a, a bunch of um, um, a bunch of blog posts about Uber, and I felt like you know there is so much in Uber that certainly is a is a company that generates revenue out of nowhere, um, but it also burns through billions of dollars. So it seems like a dot com business. I was involved in a bunch of dot com startups 20 years ago, and what happened is you could basically generate $10 billion in revenues tomorrow. You only needed two companies, right? So they used swapped um, revenue around. And you kind of disclosed this somewhere in your, in your IPO report, but nobody really cared, at least in the beginning. And you suddenly both went IPO for $100 billion. And everyone was like, wow, this is a solid business, right? And then the other company fell apart, and you had zero business. And then, well, you had some business, but it wasn't much. And I feel... This is true for a lot of these IPO generations, I, I, and I criticize them a lot. Um, you know, it's typically a soft bank investment. It poured an amazing amount of money, way too much than it seemed that that particular niche should have. They poured in a billion or 10 billion, it didn't really matter, and then took them IPO. And to me, they all seem bogus. Uh, to me, still, Uber seemed bogus as a business model. Yes, I use it every day, and it's wonderful. But as a business model, subsidizing drivers, subsidizing rights for the eternity until 
seemingly someone else can take over that business tomorrow. There seems to be no real network effect, and they pay a lot of money to get everyone inside the drivers in and getting the customers in. And I'm amazed how you how you value those because you have to value the story, right? You have to value this business model that's obviously not proven because I would value Uber at zero, uh, but you valued it at what I listened to twenty billion. In a sense, I think you're, you might be a little too harsh in Uber. There, thing. I mean, I, I agree with you about about the basic business model. Being flawed, it's not just Uber. Ride-sharing, if you look at it collectively, there isn't a single player in this game who makes money. Uber doesn't, Lyft yeah. doesn't, DD doesn't, Grab doesn't, Ola doesn't. So none of those companies make money. So I think that to me is 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 is, is a problem. But Uber has changed the car service business. It changes the way we use car service. I look at my kids and how they use Uber, and it's clear yeah. that they use Uber for things I wouldn't have used a taxi cab for ten years ago. In the Bay Area, where Uber and Lyft have their deepest roots, they've, they've tripled the size of the car service business. You look at how much revenues the old taxi cabs in San Francisco used to make in 2007, and you compare it to the Lyft and the ride-sharing company revenues in 2017, they tripled it in 10 years. So from that perspective, they're succeeding in pulling people away from a different way of travel. And I said every winner has losers. By doing that, there are a lot of people in the Bay Area who don't own cars. They just yeah. use Uber and Lyft. It's so convenient. And that is lost sales to autom- the, the auto company. So I think that from that, so they've done that well. The, I think that their biggest, and they, they also arbitrage. They, they created money from arbitraging. The fact that taxi cabs had to operate under stricter rules than they did. So initially, yeah. at least, the guys who regulated the taxi cabs did an incredible disservice to the taxi cab companies. I mean, in New York, for instance, I remember taking a taxi cab from the airport to the city. And it's a 45-minute ride. And I said, are you going to pick up somebody from here and take them back to the airport? And he said, we're not allowed to pe- pick people up in the city. And I said, what? He said, I'm at I'm an airport taxi. I'm allowed to take people only from the airport. And I said, that's yeah. stupid. You have to drive your car back empty. And he said, that's a rule or I'll take, they'll take my license away. So they arbitraged stupid rules like that. And they also arbitraged a failure of human beings to price their time right. And what I mean by that, an Uber driver yeah. is driving for way below minimum wage. Yeah. If you factor in the cost of you know, the depreciation on his car, the expenses, the other costs. But he doesn't realize it because he says, I'm making $11 on this fare for an hour. You didn't factor in your time, your the expenses. And I think that they've taken advantage of that, in a sense, to get really low-cost labor. So that, though, is and the reason I the, those are both temporary is at some point in time, that model breaks down. And with the drivers, you're starting to see it break down legally because courts are saying these guys are not independent contractors. They're your employees. You've got to pay Social Security, minimum wage. So I think that period of arbitrage is coming to an end. The only thing is, even if the costs for Uber and Lyft go up now, what do you go back to? I mean, I, you know, one way I track whether these businesses are getting viable as businesses is I track how much, because in a normal spring, I fly to New York probably 20 times over the course of five months, back and forth from San Diego. I land at 5 a.m. in New York Airport, and I take a, a car into the city to, where I, to, to the village. And I keep track of how much it costs me to take Uber or Lyft. And it usually takes about $36, $40 
for that ride and it's a 45 minute ride. There's no way, there's no way those guys are making any kind of living wage. There's no way Uber or Lyft is making money on it. So one thing yeah. I wrote when I, you know, when I wrote my Uber post, I said, you know, if I'm as an investor in Uber, I want that fare to be 65 or 75. That's a viable business model. And if that doesn't happen, then I'm selling my Uber stock because I don't see this as a long-term viable end game. So I think it's um, they've done some things well, but uh, in fact, I, when I compared Airbnb to Uber, I, I I think Airbnb is a much more solid business model to build off in terms of moving towards profitability than Uber did, and I think that's one thing that that I noticed about uh, about about the company when it went public is how much further along it was in the way to at least thinking about making money. Yeah. I think Airbnb, and that's what a lot of people have, have probably overestimated that they, they definitely have a similar acquisition cost, if not higher than Uber to get drivers and uh, the, the owners of the properties and then the the individual uh, renters online. But it's they're pretty much, they expanded on their monopoly. Nobody is able to really get into the same market globally. They really own that market. And then there's a networking effect because... As yeah. as a potential person renting your house, you really have Airbnb, VRBO, and then you start to run out of options very quickly because everybody else is yeah. so small. So I think that um, from that perspective, they're, but they're they're going to face the same friction, which is you got to keep hosts and guests happy. And what you do to make one group happy is probably going to make the other group unhappy. It's very yeah. difficult to see how you thread that needle without pissing off one group or the other. Yeah. yeah, but they don't have a lot of maintenance costs, let's put it this way. So they they kind of, there's just someone, when once you put pictures on and you, you you set up your own property, that's kind of all the interaction with the host they need. And then the host hopes for money. So I think Uber has more to do. The car needs to be maintained, the driver needs to be active. So I always felt Airbnb is a much better business. Um, well, there's one big thing and one big notion that I, I keep talking about on this podcast is um, entrepreneurship is... What do you think the role is entrepreneurship in the U.S. In, in, say, the last 20 years, what happened to it? Do you feel, and you said that earlier, we're still the best nation out there in terms of economic disruption, um, which is done by entrepreneurs typically. Do you feel that's something that we'd be still, we could do a better job? Because from, from my point of view, and that's even true being in the Valley, there is definitely um, a discount on the entrepreneur, entrepreneurial values, not just in popular culture, but the popular culture, I think, goes towards... Um, you know, people's actual decisions, what should they do in their life? So the, the, the question is, is there, just, is there less opportunity because we have less opportunities? Or is it because less entrepreneurs create these opportunities by interacting with each other, creating better products and eventually selling it to the public? I think it's always been an ebb of flow. I started in, I came to the U.S. in 1979. There was almost no entrepreneurship between 19, the early 80s. Why? Because the economy had basically shut down. People were in their shells trying to make their way through. Then you got, and people gave up. In the 80s, people said, this is the end of the old technology. We're going to go back. And then you got the 90s and you got this fresh wave. I think each yeah. wave has its peak. I think the social media user platform wave is, in my view, peaking, which Hopefully. means, uh, and I think, that it'll take a while for the next wave to kick in. And when this wave peaks and starts level off, there will be a period of quietness because people are looking at yeah. what do I do? Yeah. And things like AI, I think, are 
to, it, 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 it's not something that the average person says, I'm going to start an AI business. You know, it, it requires little, uh, the hill is a lot, you know, so if you're an MIT grad, maybe you'll start an AI business. But if you're somebody dropping, you know, dropping out of a, you know, KPMG job, you're not starting an AI business. It's just too much. So I think it's going to take a little while for that next wave to kick in. I think one thing, though, is you're in California and I'm in California. And this is not a state that is particularly friendly. Forget about entrepreneurs, anybody who owns their own business, a small business person, right? I mean, the rules you've got to, the, the, the holes you've got to thread through to get a business going. I even know, I'm amazed that anybody actually ends up running a business here after the kind of, you know, rule. And forget about, I'm not even talking about the tax issue. I mean, that's almost entirely different issue you still have to deal with. I'm just talking about running a business and staying on the right side of the law, given how many laws keep getting passed and how much time it takes for a small business to kind of follow those laws. So I think that that's where the lab experiment kicks in. You have 50 states. You're going to see states saying, hey, you don't have to do this. And that's part of the reason, I think. I wouldn't be surprised if I'm, I'm, I always think Silicon Valley is going to be the heart of technology. But I think you're going to see Austin and Boston and, I mean, other cities basically. I mean, New York has become, a, you know, a pretty active hive for startups because people find it actually a little more friendly to businesses than, and I never thought that would happen, than Silicon Valley. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's terrible. I mean, the, the, the anonymity between any kind of entrepreneurship in California, especially the coastal cities, is it's it's just a block. You could make a blockbuster movie about that, and it's it kind of feels like Eastern Eastern Germany. I can just say that again. It's this: anyone who makes money, if it's not a big tech company, a big tech company is there is a special relationship because the idea is we can extract money from it. That's what you kind of there's some love there, um, but it's the everyone who is an entrepreneur is entrepreneurial feelings. It's just. There is no representation in any city hall. It's like the furthest away from this. Like that, soon there will be this 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 law that if you make, I don't know, a certain amount of money, you need to register and you need to um, you need to apply for a permit to even make more than a hundred thousand dollars if it's not Google or Facebook. So I, that's I, there's got to be a, a popular culture that. And we, we can always say, well, these are the crazy leftists, right? Um, but I live in San Francisco. I don't, I don't, you know, I, I, I take it like Jesus, so to speak. I, I go where the sick people are. I don't go where, where the people are healthy. So I'm trying to figure out how this extreme success story Silicon Valley has created such a backlash um, from people in the area. And obviously there's high rents and there's high prices um, that were created somewhat by tech companies. And that explains part of it. But to an extent, I feel there's a deep-seated, um, almost religious zeal against capitalism. And uh, capitalism as a way to improve life seems to have lost it in most of these coastal communities. And I don't know why that is. I think part of it is that we've become a world where the rich, I mean, some of the rich have always behaved badly. That's been true through the centuries. I mean, in, every, in any group, people behave badly. But when the rich behave badly, it's conspicuous. They, they do things that... And 50 years ago, 100 years ago, when you behaved badly and you were rich, maybe there was a story in the New York Post about you behaving badly. People read it and moved on. Today, when the rich behave badly, it's on social media. You can see it over and over again. I think it feeds into preconceptions about what rich people do, that they all do what that badly behaved person does. And I think in a sense, it's feeding into this. I, I agree with you. It's a very unhealthy attitude of, 
if you're rich, you either must have cheated to got there because that's what I saw in the movie Billions and the, or the TV show, and they seem to all get rich by breaking the rules. Or now that you're rich, you're probably doing all these terrible things in your home because that's what I see other people. And I think it's very difficult to kind of say, look, I'm not that kind of rich person. I didn't get here because somebody allowed me to break a rule. I got here by working hard and creating a business. And I now I continue to hope that we start to separate those people who are obviously rich and got there the bad way from the people who actually worked and make, I mean, but as long as we view them as kind of leeches in society, and I listen to congressional hearings and I hear people describe people who are rich as essentially, you know, you can disagree with Jeff Bezos and say, you know what, you know, I don't like the way, but to argue that, you know, that he doesn't deserve to have a hundred billion, you know, what has he done? You you miss the fact that not only has he built one of the most valuable companies of all time, that he probably employs more people in the U.S. than any other company now. I mean, I think in terms of the number of employees, Amazon exceeded Walmart last year. That this yeah. is not a man who's living off, you know, and he's given you a hundred prime for nine. There's nobody in the in this country who is going to look at it prime for one nineteen and tell me that they're not getting the greatest deal ever offered. I mean, I get more from my Prime membership than any other subscription I have. It's not even close. And every day when I use it, I think about, hey, thank you, Jeff Bezos, for making it available to me. But it's this argument. I think there's a lot to it. I, I, I you know, it's, it's instinctively, I always agree. If someone says nobody needs more than 100 million, I say you're absolutely right. Everyone, basically a million is already stretching it. Um, you know, it's this Buddha's idea of um, give away everything you've got and you will be better off in the end. It it plays out slightly differently for everyone, but it should be someone's someone's own decision. And that's I think totally forgotten in this. You know, you can't just you can't just use the state to 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 take property away because I, I've seen it happen in Germany. It's not it's not a good idea. You can't be generous with other people's money. I mean, that's basically it. You can't be charitable with other people's money. And I think if you look at people like Warren Buffett, they, you know, Warren Buffett has pledged to give away most of his wealth before he dies. And he's been working hard. Think of Bill Gates, right? I and mean, people disagree with him. They might not like what he does, but he's actively tried to spend the money he made you know, at, at Microsoft. So that's why when people say, well, what's the gain here of having people buy companies? Would you rather that Bill Gates have gone into, um, I don't know, the Peace Corps in 1981? Would he have actually done more good for society as a member of the Peace Corps for the last 40 years than he did by building this greatest software company of all time, cashing out and using the tens of billions he got to do whatever he does? So I think this notion that you either can serve society or you can build businesses and get wealthy is a false one. I, I think that a lot of people who do a great deal that's good for society are able to do it because they did so well at building businesses. And I think that um, it's, it's you know, I, I, I agree with you. It's, it's not something I heard when I first came to the U.S. in the 1980s. Today, I hear it more often and often in places I, sh- I don't expect to hear it in the middle of a, uh, of a Senate hearing from, or in the middle of a congressional debate. And um, I, I'm, I'm surprised and I'm troubled when, that, when I hear that because it cuts to the heart of what, um, what, what made this country what it was in the first place. 
Yeah, I think it's a really dangerous game because that obviously seemed to be the engine to to deliver peace and happiness, let's put it this way, because when, when people think about socialist countries and say, oh, well, they had cars too, and I'm saying, yeah, that's true, we had the same technology as, as in Western Germany, but you had to wait yeah, you had to wait 20 years for it, and the damn thing would never work, right? So you can call it a car, car but it's not really a car. And the same is true for housing or, or food or anything. It's true you won't probably won't die because of starvation, but if you only have one, you will die of scurvy, most likely because there's only one food available. So, and I... I, this is a long-term thing, and obviously I understand people's uh, short-term frustrations, but I think it's a really dangerous game, and I hope it's not not falling out that way that, you know, good part of the U.S. turns super socialist. I don't think it will, but some states probably will. Uh, we'll have to play this game out. Um, one thing, we, we talked about all these things that are wrong um, and things that, we, that should go better. And a more positive note: Where do you see or really great investments that most people don't see? And you, you're the you, you're the dean of valuation. You really see what's out there, what maybe has hasn't gotten the attention or hasn't gotten the valuation. Where would you send or what direction? You don't have to spill all the beans, but what direction would you send people right now? In in uh, in terms of classes of investments, or particular companies? classes of investments, or particular investments. Okay. I tell people to go where it's darkest. I mean, that's my advice always is, you know, go where it's darkest, where people have given up, where people, you know, whether it's regionally, whether it's in terms of sectors, within terms of industries. Now, for instance, I agree with you. The airlines, for the most part, are zombie companies. But I also believe that we have to get on an aircraft to fly and that this is not the kind of business that an Amazon or Google or an Apple wants to enter. It's heavy infrastructure. It's not... So I do believe that there are going to be airlines that come out of this mess looking much better and performing much better than the airlines that went in. I mean, I own, um, you know, from my perspective, I own Singapore Air that I bought recently and I own Southwest. Neither of them looks good on a financial basis, but I believe that when this shakes out, that you look at the winners coming out on the other side, these are two companies that I've always respected for running the business solidly. I mean, they did the right things. I mean, they got whipsawed by things out of their control. So, you know, I, I, I would suggest looking through businesses you don't like because often we look at businesses we like, we latch onto companies we love and we pay prices which are too high. Is look at businesses you don't like and then look for companies within those businesses that are actually trying to do things better. The retail business, for instance, brick and mortar retail. It's a terrible business. But clearly, Costco and the dollar store have figured out ways to create niches in this business to still succeed. So what you're looking for are bad businesses, whether a com- but, but still very big businesses that we all need, where you've got companies essentially looking for better ways to do this business, not waiting for Amazon to tell them how to do it. So I think that that that's you know that is that is a big part of what value is is looking where nobody else is looking, and essentially looking past the damage right now, and asking what will happen. Now, because I talked about stories, there's nothing wrong with investing in stories. We've always invested in stories. We want stories backed up with numbers. You got to do your homework, tell a story, make sure it's you no know, a probable, plausible story, build in the numbers, invest, and then sit back and see how it plays out yeah i should have listened i should have listened to you and bought some gamestop there uh, like two two three, i don't know when you put it out like two weeks ago and you said it's worth 40 and then it just jumped um again to what, 200 and it's down to 120 so. I, I think the problem with gamestop is there is a plausible story 
Now, it's a plausible story for a reincarnation, especially with with, with the, the Chewy CEO, Ryan Cohen, being on the board and pushing for change, but it's not going to be easy. And it's not, I mean, GameStop is not going to become an online retail giant overnight because they're going to be competing against other online retailers who are much better at it. They can't become a gaming platform overnight either. It's a very different business. So could they get there? Yes. That's why I don't think, you know, I think people were selling short and saying they're worth nothing. I think we're missing that potential transition. But when you pay $200 per share for the company, there is no story I can tell you that'll get you to 200 I mean, this is just pipe dreams. You're not buying on value anymore. You're buying because you hope you can sell it to somebody else at 250 how did you come up with 42? I mean, I, I know it was like nine for the longest time. Oh, what I looked at is I looked at the fact that if they stayed a brick and mortar retail store, they're going to end up at about 15. One of the things that came out of COVID that was good for them is they did pivot to online retailing and they discovered that they had a strength, which is they had this da- uh, the, this database of everybody who went to GameStop. I know that you, you know, my kids used to go into GameStop and you bought a game. Yeah. You gave them your number, your phone number. So basically, they accumulated this database that they could use and your address yeah. to actually mine based on what kinds of games you bought in the past and sell online. It's a strength they did not know they had. So my optimistic story is not a really upbeat story. I see them coming back to positive growth. That to them would be a huge plus because of the last five years, they've seen the revenues in store shrink. I think they can rediscover growth if they can build the online. And the advantage of the online platform is you don't have to own stores. You don't have leases. You don't have the kinds of fixed costs you had with the traditional store. It's a higher margin business. Sure. You bring in online retail with higher margins, that is the extra $15 or $20 in value per share you're getting. It's not going to be easy, but it's definitely doable. So the, the $40, I, actually my base value is $30, my best case was $47. So it's, you can see even within that what the range on the value is. One thing, and I don't know if you, if you know about that, I, it, is there a way to... Uh, but when we when we see these short squeezes and the way they happen, and I know the float was very low um, with with GameStop, and it looked like a great candidate, and uh, I didn't see the post either, but I looked back to the original post on Reddit, and it was like they they recommended at the time buy a long dated option because we don't know what's going to happen, but it was only fifty thousand shares, so so like what that's five hundred thousand dollars. I mean that's like two people can buy the whole thing, the whole float, and then there's nothing nothing left for the for the uh, for the short sellers, but. Is there any way to predict, you know, Navi, on the second stage of this short squeeze, is there any way to predict these short squeezes or are they completely random? Like, well, how, how do they happen? Do they not happen for months and then they happen immediately? I think what made the GameStop short squeeze so unusual, the short squeeze have been around 160 years. The very first short squeeze was in 1862, Cornelius Vanderbilt, the New York magnet. Yeah used to short squeeze to essentially get control of the railroads coming to New York. He squeezed somebody who had shorted one of the railroad stocks, drove him out of business, bought out his business, 1862. But if you look at the history of short squeezes from 1862 to the last decade, to the you know, 2007, Volkswagen, huge short squeeze, Porsche did it. Yeah. Now, yeah. Usually you had a big entity that was causing the squeeze. So basically you had Volkswagen, you had Vanderbilt buying shares effectively with an end game. End game for Vanderbilt is he didn't want to control the company. He wanted to control railroads. He was using the short squeeze as a pathway to a bigger game. 
What was different about the GameStop squeeze, and perhaps we shouldn't be surprised by it, it wasn't a single person. It was a collection of people, each individually not wealthy enough to do anything, but collectively. So it's, I call that's why I called it the first crowd squeeze in history. And uh, in yeah. fact, they were following was a template that Tesla stockholders have followed for the last 10 years. There have been three yeah. short squeezes in Tesla in the last 10 years. And all three have been created by these groups of buyers pushing up the price rather than a single buyer. The problem you have groups of buyers is crowds are tough to predict. So if you ask me what's going to cause the next short squeeze, it's whatever catches the crowd's eye. So if I'm a short seller, you know what my end game from this point on is now that I've seen what happens to GameStop? Stay out of the public eye. Don't pick on stocks in a way that draws. Because the old short selling rule book was, here's what you did. You short sold a company. Then you went out on a platform and you yelled as loud as you could about how terrible the company was, how it was going to go to zero. It's a, no, it's a Andrew Left, for instance, Citroen, you know, one of the companies. That's his, yeah, that's his playbook. No. He does a lot of research. He publishes 100-page thesis on how terrible the company is. You do that now, it's almost like you're attracting the attention of a crowd. And they're going to latch on. And if they latch on, then you're in trouble. So I wouldn't be surprised one of the things that comes out of this is the way you do short selling is going to go under the surface. You're not going to see people be open about it. And if the short ratio starts rise, because that's the other trigger that can draw the crowd is short interest went up above 100%. You're going to keep your eye on that as well. You don't want to be short selling companies, but that number gets to be high enough that you get on somebody else's radar. So I think it basically, uh, the, the, if you're a short seller, the lesson you learn from this is don't draw attention to yourself because you don't want the crowd to notice you because the crowd notices you. It won't work if I short sell Apple or Google. I mean, it, 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 let's face it, collectively, these Redditors control about $20 billion on a really, really, really amazing game. All the Robin would happen. $20 billion yeah. is nothing in this market. It works on a GameStop because it's a small market cap company. It won't work on silver. So when I heard they were targeting silver, I said, you guys know, don't know your history. You know how many times people have tried this on silver? The Hunt brothers did in the 1980s, went bankrupt. Yeah. But I think that's, that's you know, that's, that's, I think, the broader lesson from GameStop is don't make yourself the target of the crowd, especially, if you're, you know, if, if you're short selling a small company because they can take you down. Yeah, I've been always very careful with, with shorts um, simply because of the fact that your your losses are unlimited and you, you have a very limited upside. So it's it seems like a really bad deal. And also because you don't control your time horizon. That to me is the big, yeah. big, big difference between being long and short. Long, I control my time horizon. I can hold and hold and hold. You can't force me. You have opportunity costs. I mean, from a from a fund perspective, you have opportunity costs to be long, right? And they, they might develop and you, you, there's drawdowns that you are not able to stomach or your investors. For the shorts, you typically it's for automated strategies that you hold for a couple of days or for a week. But but so the, the time horizon is kind of the same in most liquid markets unless the market breaks down. But then, you know, everyone is in trouble. So you won't be blamed for this. But I always felt the 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 risk ratio is really tricky with shorts, the way the way they're set up right now. And um, it, I only learned with the GameStop crisis about this really archaic system that runs behind and actually enables us shorts because it's 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 actually really complicated. I had no idea. You know, I've been using it on a daily basis. Every two seconds, I ran a short, and I'm like, holy smokes, this is like 15 different transactions. Time you actually had to get the shares borrowed and delivered 
Yeah. Now, physical shares. I mean, those days are long since gone, but no. Well, you don't think of it. Like, like you said, you, I always felt it's the same as a long. The longs are complicated enough with the, with the archaic back, backdoor um, infrastructure, the back office infrastructure that most brokers have. So that was really interesting. That's what taught me a lot from, from the GameStop, reading all these articles and research about actually what happens in the background. Um, anyway, I have a couple of quick questions for you, um, if, uh, if you don't mind. Um, what do you think of... Um, Stephen uh, J. Dubner and Stephen Lewitt, um, the Freakonomics authors. Um, what do you think of their style of teaching economics? I love it. I think, you know, I think we need to bring econ down from the abstract to things we do every day. I mean, I tell people, you know, when you say you don't like econ, you don't realize you are practicing economics every moment, ever practicing finance every moment of every day, every decision you make is a financial decision. You can choose not to view it as a financial decision. So when I teach finance, I try to make it as close to things. So I don't talk just about companies making debt decisions. I talk about how that plays out in your individual decisions. I talk about agency costs, big issue in finance. They say, what does that mean? So when you borrow money from a bank, your incentives and the bank's incentives are not the same. The bank's incentive is to make sure you pay, pay, pay the bank back. Your incentives might be to take that money and take big bets with it because you get a big upside, you get to keep the upside. The big downside, you declare bankruptcy and you walk away. And banks know this. So guess what? They write covenants, they write protections. They try to make sure you don't do this. And by doing that, you're in a sense saying, this is now, so when you talk about bond covenants, it sounds like this fancy abstract thing that only, no. but I think it just reflects this problem of incentives not being aligned. So I, I like the fact that, that, you know, that thing, and that's one of the things that behavioral finance has also brought to finance that I think is good, which is accepting the fact that we're not robots. We are human beings. Now, we make decisions in bad ways sometimes because that's what human beings do. So I think both, uh, both bringing economics down to the basics and tying it to actual human behavior makes economics more interesting. Making economics more interesting means people will learn it more. Is there a theory that describes economics, and I know the rationally human is, is the basis of modern economic analysis, is there a similar theory that's been developed for an... Um, for for the emotional human, you know, the one that's the, where the limbic brain is being motivated by Facebook and by 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 social media. Kahneman in the 1970s, and you know, if if you, if you look at his books over time, it was essentially taking things we knew in psychology and looking at markets and saying that explains it. It's not stupid. We hold on to losers too long. Just well-established fact. Yeah. Why do we hold on to losers too long? Because the act of selling a stock is an admission that you screwed up. So what do we do? We delay it, we delay it, we delay it. It doesn't make you irrational. It makes you human. And I think what, uh, what, what, what you get out of that is essentially the recognition that you need to put in systems in place to kind of fight your humanity, which is you need to put in a short sell at the time. So let's say, you know, or a limit sell when you buy something. Let's say you buy something at 50 because you think it's worth 80. You put in the buy, yeah. and then you put in the limit sell at 80. What At the same yeah. time you put the buy. Here's why. If the stock goes from 50 to 80, you will find a way to convince yourself to keep holding that stock because 
I've made so much money. What if I wait a few more weeks? So one of the things I've learned is my weakest links as a human being and how to automate processes so I don't get in my own way because I know I will. And I think behavioral finance is fascinating because it gives you insight into yourself. And if nothing else, it strips away the delusions that we have of we're rational human beings. We do everything for a good reason. Yeah. Because a rational human being is an oxymoron. We're human beings, so we're rational. We can't be both. Yeah. It's Spock versus Kirk. Um, what's, your, what's your favorite city in India? I grew up in Chennai. It remains my favorite city. So, I, you know, it's the old, most conservative of the Indian cities. It's a throwback in time. It's become more modern the last 40 years. But uh, it is my, I mean, it's my favorite city because that's where I grew up. Um, I went to school in Bangalore. I loved Bangalore when I went to school there. But I haven't been to Bangalore since 1979 because I'm afraid of what, it's, what I've heard it's become, which is a city where the traffic never moves. It's so incredibly overcrowded. They've ripped out the, the trees and the gardens that used to make it such a beautiful city. But I love Bangalore as a city too. I spent a lot of time in Gorgon in, in Delhi and uh, became really... I really liked the city. Um, and that was back 20 years ago. I went back a couple of years ago and I couldn't find a single, I couldn't remember a single building. So it looks like Singapore now. And it's, it's an amazing, there's freeways snaking everywhere. And there's an, it's, I've, that's like China, right? So it's the same development that happened there. And in that part of Delhi, there's parts of Delhi that haven't changed at all. But there's metros now. And I'm like, holy smokes, that really went quick. That was only 15 years that I missed. And it's, it's like going back to Shanghai. It's completely that's gone. That's the thing gone. about Asia, right? I mean, it's, I left Asia in 1970. And people keep asking me why I don't write more about India. And I said, it wouldn't be right for me to write about India because the India I left is not the India you're in. It would be extremely patronizing of me to talk about India now as if I knew it well. It's a different country. It's changed so immensely in the 42 years that I have to be cautious to bite my tongue when I feel the urge to say something because I first have to check it out to make sure that it's still true. So I think that um, all over Asia, especially in India and China, China, of course, the change happened you know, before India. But I have a feeling this is the decade where you're going to see massive change in India. And I've mixed feelings about it. There's going to be good stuff that comes out of it. But there's also going to be stuff that we're going to lose that, that, that'll, that'll, that'll be gone forever. Are you considering going back and running for public office or becoming economic ministry? Joining them, no? Zero chance, zero. I mean, I'm not a politician and I'm not a bureaucrat. I'm a teacher. If I didn't teach, I'd have no oxygen. I mean, I, I need to be in front of a classroom. I need to be teaching. No, I'll do that till, my, till, till I'm not able to do it anymore. So I have zero interest in, in, in changing public policy by directly running for office. But who knows? You know, people might go through my classes. And they have. And they've become you know, ministers and run for office. and not always push things that we talked about in class, but maybe indirectly I can affect policy that way. Teach, and that's the thing about teaching is you can affect, I mean, I change lives in my classroom and they go out and change lives. The ripple effects kind of spread around the world. That's maybe a deeper question. How, how much do you think can leadership influence these big, really big entities like um, 
you know, how we think about economics, but also how politics work, how, the, how our leadership influences the economic history of a country. And I'm, I'm, I'm using the example of Singapore, right? So it, was, it seemed to me single-handedly be transformed from a fishing village to the richest country on the planet in less, less than 40 years. Well, do you would you attribute it as an as an expert in, in economics attributed to leadership, or this is something that the leadership was basically just in for the ride, and it really doesn't make sense? Clearly, clearly, with Singapore, you're looking at the exception to the rule, right? Not only did you have a leader, you had a, one of those rare leaders who really had no hidden agenda other than making Singapore yeah. a world class nation. Just like you and te- just like you and teaching, right? So. Well, and I think he did, and it's tough as a leader to be able to do that because power usually goes to people's heads at some point. You start with the best of intentions, but after about 15 years, you, you know, power goes to people. It never happened with Lee Kuan Yew. I mean, it, he, I mean, and that makes him, I think, you know, almost the exception. I can't think of another country where you've had that. In Sing- I, describe, I tell people Singapore is the only country, and he, because he did it that way, he created a, a group of politicians and bureaucrats who actually thought the way he did. I tell people Singapore is the only country where I've talked to an official in the ministry or in trading where the person talks about a 25-year plan and actually means it. Mm-hmm. They're actually yeah. thinking 25 years ahead and saying, what do we need to do? And they will make sure that even if they pass on that the person next will keep working on that plan. Now, and I think that, so can, can a person make a difference? Absolutely. It's easier to do that when you have a small city state than a country. It's easier to do that when you have a homogeneous population than when your population's diverse, pulling in different directions, different cultural perspectives, but I think that leaders make a difference. But I think ultimately change comes from below. I think ultimately real change doesn't come from the top down. Top can set an example, but it has to come from people. I mean, I tell my kids, look, you know, I know you want to change the world, but if you can change one person at a time, one thing at a time, it starts to add up. It starts to add up. We all did our, our incremental piece. I think we would do a lot of good even if it's the small things. Yeah, and and Malaysia is not far behind Singapore right now, right? So it, it's it's certainly in GDP, it's 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 still a little bit away, but in growth rates, it's really close, and it probably has one of the most corrupt country on the planet, corrupt government in on the planet. You know, it's been it's been plagued by scandals, but it's still grow, really closing in on on sometimes Singapore. Sometimes countries succeed having. in spite of their leaders. Sometimes countries succeed because yeah. of leaders, right? I mean, it's a you know, if you have an entrepreneurial people who are hardworking. They can, they can survive bad leadership. If you, the problem is when the, if leadership stays corrupt and inept for long enough, the incentive structures get changed enough that the people who are the best people in your country tend to leave. They yeah. say, I, I don't want to deal with this anymore. In which case, you're ending up with a selection bias. The people are left behind are not the people you wanted in your country. But that's, I think... Yeah. The danger, and I think Africa has faced this problem. I think it's the it's the it's a challenge for Africa. Is for the last forty years, I've been told that this is Africa's decade. That this is going to there with the natural resource. They're going to find a way. At the end of every decade, we look back and say, "What happened?" And yeah. I think Africa is a classic example of how if corruption and bad behavior get rewarded long enough, 
you essentially lose the very best people in your country to, to other parts of the world. If you would have to pick a winner for the next 10 years out of those troubled African countries, which top three would you pick if you have to? Well, Nigeria and South Africa. If Nigeria and South Africa don't win, Africa's not winning, right? I mean, in a sense, there's such disproportionately large parts. So I'm going to go with Nigeria. I'd keep, you know, I, I, I love Nigeria as a country. I have a lot of good friends with Nigerian. And I think that um, Nigeria's potential has always exceeded what it's produced. And I keep hoping that this will be the decade where things change. So I, I would put Nigeria in there. South Africa, I think in spite of, again, in, that, in spite of its leadership, I think has the most diverse um, economy of all of Africa in terms of different businesses. It's not just natural resources, a collection of things. And it has some very, very bright, well-trained people in every discipline if they're let, allowed to do their thing, South Africa. And, you know, uh, if, if I had to pick a third country, I'd probably pick Ghana. They seem to be on everyone's list. Well, oh, oh, I had, I had um, Ruby Alcantara on and she, she does impact investing and she says, you know, those are you typically the darlings. Tanzania used to be part of that and then Kenya. Oh, what about Ethiopia? Do you feel Ethiopia is on a good trajectory or it's, it's going to drop? Well, well, I think, I mean, I don't know enough about what's happening within the country, but clearly, if you look, I mean, I remember when Ethiopia was a poster child for everything wrong with the world. I mean, it's a, and, and to see how far they've come is gratifying. So they clearly come a long way. So I think we need to remember that they've moved a lot. I think that um, they have the pieces in place. Again, I, when I look at a country, I look at uh, the education system because without a good education system, you're not going to get the train. You, you look at the, the infrastructure for uh, for development and how that's working. And uh, you look at the entrepreneurship. What's, what's the capacity for entrepreneurship? And much of Africa, two out of the three or all three are not there. And I think Ethiopia, you have the pieces in place for all three to come. And the infrastructure hasn't come in, obviously, to take a while. But infrastructure is often the easiest of the three. Ultimately, you just need to find people to invest the money. If the other two come in, I think the third will come in. Problem in Africa is you don't. You're almost never. If you're a small one of those sub-Saharan countries, you're almost never completely in control of your destiny. Because your neighbors, yeah. or two of your neighbors, go into a debt spiral. Their troubles spill over into your country. You can't even avoid it anymore. So it's not easy, and that's why I pick Nigeria and South Africa among mine because they're the ones that are most able to kind of insulate themselves. The smaller African countries, the trouble is you can start with the best leadership and the best plans, but the whole thing can spin out of your control very quickly. Yeah, it's it's an extremely, um, extremely multi, uh, there's so many factors to keep in mind. And I always have that that impression that there is, in the end, you just have to find that that right factor to tune. But obviously, the, the timing needs to be right. And uh, I was, we see this with South Korea, which which went from really poor to really rich in like a heartbeat. It seems in less than a generation. And I always feel, isn't it a shame that there's so many other places in the world that have a blueprint and they can just copy it? Like China kind of copied, you know, what Taiwan did, so to speak. But it didn't seem to. It doesn't seem to be that easy, right? That's, I'm very naive. I have to say, I see. I I feel like, uh, given all that knowledge, and you just switch on YouTube, it should be that everyone just um, copies that blueprint. 
And we don't have to, we don't, we two don't have to debate about it. It's just in five years, it's done, right? The problem is it's not just the pieces in the blueprint, it's a sequencing, right? If you, you know, we know that what goes in the blueprint is good education, good infrastructure, all those things. But if you do the education first and you don't do the infrastructure, what you end up with is you end up being the supplier of employees to the rest of the world. I right, you take yeah. Hungary, for instance, you know, you, you go to Budapest, this place is full of universities. I remember walking through, every other building was a university. And I said, where do all these graduates find jobs? And yeah. they told me, they yeah. said, they find jobs in Paris and London and Frankfurt. We've lost our young people because, you know, so I think it's not just what you need, but to make sure that the sequencing works, that as one supplies, there is a place for them to go work. Because if you have a good education system and your business environment is not being developed simultaneously, the sequencing is off. You're going to end up with an education system, but it's going to basically be the rest of the world that benefits from it. But I think the key, though, is education. I think without, and that, that's where technology might be a huge plus in this, where you don't have to build big universities. You don't have to go out and hire thousands of faculty. And when I talked about disrupting education, my the person I'm looking at is that analyst in Myanmar, you know, who there is zero chance that he's going to be able to raise the money to come to a business school in the U.S. and end up in my classes. But he's valuing companies and he has very limited resources. You know, he's not had a CFA. There are no special seminars around that he can go to. I want to reach that guy. You know, and um, even with, with the language barrier, I can if I can get there, then I am doing my small part because that infrastructure, that education base is what's going to allow these, these countries to kind of find the growth path. I think you're, you're onto something there. And I, I, I feel, and maybe this is just the hope of my generation, and we're going to look down to Africa in 20 years and say, oh man, we just had this high expectation that didn't work out. But I feel this time... It seems to be happening because all you need is a smartphone and uh, a battery. You don't even need electricity. You need nothing. All you need is a little bit of internet. That's why I was pulling so hard for Jumia to explode as an... I would love to have seen Jumia as a $100 billion, $200 billion company. Because it's not right. just Jumia's success then. It's the fact that a company like Jumia was able to... Because if you look at... The big South African companies, they're either mining companies or natural resource companies or big manufacturing companies. It's very difficult to think of a big, successful African company that is technology-driven. And Jumia offered that promise of, hey, look, you know, we're, we're, you know we're, we might be from Africa, but we can tap modern technology. I still think Jumia can come back, but I think because they were so... In, I mean... They just wanted to look too good too soon. That's the real problem. They yeah. played with the numbers to make themselves look better than they were. In a sense, it blew up in their faces. No. So I, you know, I'm really pulling for, because one company succeeding like that will do. I mean, I remember in India, what triggered the shift towards, because India was never an entrepreneurial country. It's yeah. very top-down, caste-driven what triggered the growth of entrepreneurship in India was uh, was the success of Infosys, one of the first technology yeah. companies from India to come out of nowhere. And people said, no, Narayan Murthy is not your classic family group 
billionaire. He built this company. He took it public. He's made it into a company larger than most family group companies. And he did it with an engineering degree. And I can do that too. And I think that that is the kind of success that creates change from the bottom up that can be real change that's long lasting. Oh, I totally agree. If if you get, and I feel we, we're more on the side of entrepreneurship as a, I, th I think it's more of a pull, like you have that role model, but you also have, you pull yourself basically out of your bootstraps and you use all these tools like education because education is already there. I feel like in Africa, you have to use it and you have to apply it. And you got to be a risk taker. It says you have to accept. Right. And if you're an entrepreneur. Like in Africa, yeah, risk-taking isn't the problem. So, so risk-taking is uh, not really a problem. Nigerians are classic risk-takers. I mean, they're, they're made for entrepreneurship, right? So yeah. I think that, you know, uh, I think that that, is, so from, a, from an African perspective, I think that the ingredients in place, if they will allow you to keep the fruits of your success, an entrepreneur in Nigeria who succeeds should be allowed to succeed rather than have bureaucrats step in and try to extract rents from him or her. Yeah, that is a, that is a ginormous problem, the, the political political risk. Well, anyways, Aswad, I, I, thanks a lot for, for taking the time. I learned so much. Um, I'm, I'm, I feel much wiser already. <laughs> Thank you. No, yeah. Absolutely. I hope we get to do this again one day and maybe we look back and say, oh, we, we were so wrong five years ago. That's fine. I'm okay being wrong. Awesome. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate that. Take care. Nice talking to you. Talk soon. Bye-bye.